right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Honest Offense podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Isaac Morehouse. Isaac is someone I first met over a decade ago, and I've loved following him ever since. He is an entrepreneur who has been involved in multiple startups. We'll talk all about that. He's run a taxpayer advocacy group, and he's the author of a number of books, including one that I'm reading right now called Don't Do Stuff You Hate. I normally have a hard copy with me that I can show off right here, but I'm traveling. I'm reading it on Kindle right now. But Isaac's a great writer. I mean, he's just very accessible. He's he writes in a way that it's not just this typical motivational babble. It's actual advice on how you can make tangible changes to what you're doing. Uh, I just, I, I love everything he puts out. You might've seen him on TV talking about the death of college, the value of apprenticeships, how to make yourself marketable to employers. He's become something of a muse to Tucker Carlson on whose show he's appeared multiple <laughs> times. So Isaac, thank you so much for slumming it here with me. Hey man, that was a great intro. You got me all got me all hyped up. Can't fit in this hat anymore. Good. That's my goal. That's my goal. So to, I'll, I'll hype you down a little bit here now because you're one of the people who who frustrates me in a way. And it, it's rooted in my own insecurity because <laughs> I, I know I know a little bit about your story as a kid. And, and you're one of these people who just seems like you were born to be an entrepreneur. Like, even if you didn't know what you're going to be doing, you always had that natural fire to you. So let's let's just kind of start with where did that come from? Talk to me a little bit about your upbringing, your life as a kid, and where that initial entrepreneurial spirit came from. Man, that's a good question because I don't, I don't like think of myself as. I mean, I, I guess I do now just because what I've done, I enjoy being an entrepreneur, and I feel like I I would feel restless if I wasn't uh, building stuff. But I didn't start out that way at all. I didn't like discover that until really until I started my first company uh, in 2013. And that was, I mean, that was like 15 years almost into my career, 12 years into my career. Um, but then in retrospect, I was like, oh, I guess I, I guess I've always been kind of entrepreneurial. Like I've always started different organizations or different, you know, if I was in a group, I would spearhead something, right? Like just it was there, but I didn't recognize it as such. And I certainly didn't think about, I mean, I didn't know anything about like what startups were like this whole culture. And I mean, it, a lot of that didn't exist back then, but um, you know, startup culture and like entrepreneurship and hustle and being a solopreneur, all these different things that are awesome that are out there now. I didn't know about any of that stuff. I just knew that um, I wanted to do stuff that I enjoyed and I didn't have any real tangible skills. <laughs> <laughs> but I really like people and I really like communicating with people, yeah. uh, talking and writing. And, um, you know, it turns out that you can actually build a lot of stuff if you can rally people around a vision and you can get people with actual tangible skills to do the things that require them. Um, so if, if I'm going to like try to dissect, like why, why do I have such an appetite for, for entrepreneurship? And I, and I don't try to present myself as like some super successful entrepreneur by any means. I'm not, I'm not sitting here on stacks of cash and making, you know, huge deals and stuff like that. But I think I was homeschooled growing up. Um, and, and my, you know, in my upbringing, I had a lot of independence at a, at a young age um, by necessity, had a lot of independence and had to do a lot of like, chores and things around the house and always had jobs from a very young age. So I think that combination of work ethic, which was like, okay, you, you have a lot of responsibility, um, which is the way that I was raised and independence, you have a lot of control over your own schedule, over your own decisions, right? We had a, a you know, 
homeschool setup that was like fairly loose. I mean, we had classes and stuff, but like I was mostly in charge of my day of structuring things of my goals and achieving them. And that combination of independence and responsibility, work ethic. Um, I think if you have a lot of that, you find out that you, you want to be more entrepreneurial, certainly, uh, than sort of the standard, you know, career story. You find that out once you start getting into environments that don't look like that. So like what, whatever your condition to think is normal, you'll, you'll see as normal and anything else will seem like the exception. Right. And so if you grow up with parents who are celebrities or professional athletes, you'll see that as normal. And the odds that you become one are actually pretty high. Not, not necessarily because you have special skill or connections. That's, that's part of it. But because you're conditioned to think that it's possible and that it's normal, right? Well, I grew up not with any like big ambitions. I was not around anybody who was like really entrepreneurial or really successful in that way. Maybe some small business owners. But I did grow up believing that having almost total control over my own schedule was very normal. And being almost entirely responsible for my own everything was very normal. And when I started to enter environments, I went to a, a private school for one year in my sophomore year. It felt so foreign to me to be responding to like these bells that would buzz every 50 minutes telling you what to do, not being able to work the days I wanted to work and the hours I wanted to work because I was in school. Like I chafed against that. I was like, this is abnormal. I don't like this. Right. And so same thing in my career, I would go work somewhere and I would love the organization or the company I was working for. It'd be very interesting work. And I, I like almost all kinds of work. I find it fascinating. I like the people, but I would just slowly find I'm getting irritated. I'm feeling constrained. I'm always doing what other people. And it was like against my nature because I've been raised that way. So I think that's kind of the biggest thing. Yeah, there's some nurture. There's some nature. There's a combination. Like I have a, a personality maybe that's more geared towards that. I'm absolutely willing to entertain that. I think the way I was raised um, was a big part of it. And then just choices I made along the way, just, just realizing the thing that I value most of all is human freedom. And in my quest to try to live free and help others live free, I kind of exhausted all my options and realized, and I'm always looking for the highest leverage, the highest ROI. And I tried everything, politics, nonprofits, education, all these different. And I was like, I, I, I can get better. I know I can do better. I know I can advance freedom in a more effective way. And entrepreneurship was basically all that was left after I eliminated everything else. So yeah. there's kind of a combination of deliberate choice, the way I was raised and the way my personality is, is probably the best story I could tell you about that. Well, it's funny that you say you chafed against being in school and dealing with the bells and going where you're supposed to go because it was against how you were raised being homeschooled. But I grew up going to public school from day one and I always chafed against it, but I never had that alternative experience. I never knew that there was a different way to do it because my parents came from traditional backgrounds. All I knew was this. And so I kind of, I fought myself even the first decade of, of employment after school, I was just like, well, I, this is all there is. So it's, it's my, my fault, my problem, my issue, if I'm uncomfortable in this environment. And the fact that I was in detention four times a week in high school, just because I would talk too much, I couldn't sit still. I saw that as, as a negative for, for all the way till like my late twenties. Cause I was just like, well, this is, I, I'm being punished for, for my personality, my entire life. And I don't, I don't know what other alternative there is. So it's, I think there are, there is a, a nature and a nurture component to this fully. Isn't that amazing that you were in detention all the time and now you're doing comedy and marketing and podcasting. 
I mean, the, the overlap between those things, that Venn diagram is some serious, for, for real though, like people like you, I think are just so impressive to me because you have something innately and you had the, and you had the, the balls <laughs> to actually, to, to be the kid who would end up in detention. Cause like it, cha- that system chafed against you. That's not the case. I mean, many people very easily get conditioned to the, to the shackles that are around them. And I don't want to sound over dramatic when I say shackles, but there is a very real sense as a kid, that is that that is a version of shackles. I mean, you're in a place that literally has barbed wire around it and in, and in cinder block cells and you have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. Right? right. So like there is a very real sense in which you're shackled and to chafe against that and to not, I mean, it's like Shawshank redemption, right? To not let your spirit get broken and to just consign yourself to that system. That's impressive. That's not something I can say, you know, for myself, because I, I did grow up with a, with a higher degree of freedom. So like, I always love meeting people like you who, who are, defective products of the system, <laughs> right? You went through the system. You were supposed to come out as this uniform blob that, that sort of follows the rules and you didn't, they didn't, they didn't succeed in educating you, yeah. right. As, as, as they're attempting to. And that's really impressive to me. That takes, that takes some, some stones. So hats off to you. Well, I love, you know, Michael Malice always says that schools are literal prisons for children. And he uses that word literal. He emphasizes that. And until he said it like that, I, I never really put it together, but it is so true. Like you said, it's, it's barbed wire. You're told where to go, <laughs> when to go. You have a limited amount of time. You get to be out on the yard and see sunlight for 30 minutes. If you're lucky. I mean, we, they yep. eliminated recess for us in like sixth grade, but uh, it's it's hard for me to be impressed with myself because I've I've only it's again it's only been w- within the last three or four years that I've realized I'm like I just have to be who I am and, and whatever happens happens so I haven't it's not like I, I have any kind of success doing it at this point but I'm not I'm not fighting my nature now which I think in and of itself is is a success yeah I mean look like I can see from looking in your eyes that you are alive right <laughs> and that is I, I'm not kidding that is actually rare right and and I. And I know you know this because we both lived in DC for a while and we're in the DC scene. Just think about riding the metro in DC. How many eyes yeah. have life in them? Oh, yeah, none. You know what I mean? Like yeah. people are literally zombified. Like they, they're just, I, I, here's a great story for the metro. I, I hated the metro and I usually <laughs> drove my car instead. I, it felt so communist, but sometimes I took it. I was on the metro. And I'm like a newbie in town. So I don't, I, my muscles aren't adjusted to the starts and stops. And so I'm just standing there, whatever I was doing, reading a book or holding my phone. I don't know if I even had a smartphone back then. Oh yeah, I did. I did. It's not, it wasn't that long ago. Um, and the thing stops and I start to fall forward. I'm going to face plant. And I think I had a backpack on and I feel somebody hold me up from the back, like grab my backpack and keep me from falling. And I'm from the Midwest. Everybody smiles and talks to everybody else. I turned around. I was like, oh, thanks. I swear to you. It was this dude in a suit, the most pallid, lifeless person I've ever seen holding a Blackberry in one hand. And he just, he reached his hand out and grabbed me and he didn't even look at me. He just did it like out of instinct. There was no like life or kindness or even choice. And I I don't know if he, I think he maybe didn't even know that he grabbed onto me. He probably just had been instinctively trained. If someone's falling, don't let them because it will clog up the exit way while we're all trying to get out. Like it was the funniest thing ever. I'm like, I've never experienced someone doing a kindness for me and being utterly dead, not even looking at me in the eye when I turned to say, thank you. And it's like, he didn't even know that he did it. He had headphones in. He had this, it was, and that was like the most DC, you know, ever. Yes. It's so true. People put themselves on autopilot. I remember sitting when, when I was at the law firm and it was like one of my first weeks there 
And I was just sitting at my desk and I'm just looking around at everyone else just sitting there and, and just their head down, they're typing away, they're doing their work. And, and I remember turning to, to one of the guys next to me and being like, is this just what people do all day? Because at, <laughs> like, at least in school, like I could- it, when, Is when this I was going what crazy, we are? <laughs> right. But like, because at least when I was in school, it's like, okay, I'll skip a class and whatever, I'll get a detention, big deal. But it's like at school, I, like, I could find ways out of, out of having to do stuff I didn't want to do and just accept the punishment. But it's like at work, you can't really, you can't even escape. And I remember the guy just looking at me, he's like, oh, you're not going to last long here. <laughs> and and he, he wasn't wrong. At school, at least there's that that final graceful element, which is that the teachers also don't want you right. to be in their classroom. And so like, they will eventually graduate you, yep. you know? Yep. And, and, and at least, like at school, I at least had an audience, you know, I can make the other kids laugh. And it's like, at work, they didn't appreciate that at work. I, I think people have been beaten down enough. But you know, when you're when you're 16, 17, you haven't been beaten down quite yet. So people are looking for some levity and, and work that didn't go over very well. Man, it's so funny. You talk about like different energies people have when I so after that private high school, I went to um, I went to community college. I took all my classes. Like I did my last two years of high school there. So I would take classes three days a week and then I would work two, two or three days a week. And, and I actually really enjoyed some of the classes at community college a lot more than the, than the four-year university I went to. It was, it was uh, like just a more interesting environment. And I was like 15, 16, 17. So I'd take philosophy classes, whatever. And I remember I had a couple of professors who were like pretty funny and pretty interesting just a few, but when you got them, you noticed, right? And so I'm sitting in there and they would tell some jokers, I mean, and I would be like laughing so loud and no one else would laugh. And I would look and about a third of the class didn't understand the joke. About a third of them were like asleep. And then a third of them thought it was funny, but there was like an unwritten rule that I didn't know because I never went to school. I don't know. It's like not cool to laugh at the professor or something, you know? And it was like, and I just remember being like, why is everyone so like repressed? This yes. is like, when you get it, a class that's actually fun, have some fun, you yeah. know? So, okay. So explain to me. So you say, you know, you felt like you never had tangible skills and I was always the same way. And again, so for me, like my default was, all right, I have to like, just fake my way through this, this <laughs> corporate hierarchy and pretend like I have skills or like try to try to get some of the skills that they say I need. Because again, like I just, I didn't know what the alternative was. So it was, it was again, just like, I'm like, all right, I guess I, I have to be a part of the system. And, and, and you're right in the sense that like, I never really let it completely beat me down. I kept, kept my spirit in me, but it was like, I, I have to repress it to a certain extent just to be able to fit in and, and follow this process that I, I have to follow to survive. You didn't do that. So like, so tell me where, where, how did you and I diverge as far as that? Like, how did you say, I don't have any skills, but I don't care. I'm still going to do what I want to do. And I just, I never, I didn't have that, I guess that confidence or that like, I just, I didn't know what else I would do anyway. It wasn't like I gave up on my dream to go to law school. It was, I don't, yeah. I don't have anything else to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. And people are saying law school makes sense for me. So I'm like, all right, I guess, I mean, I don't have a better idea. I'll, I'll do what they tell me to do. It, it's an interesting, it's an interesting combo. I think of a positive character trait and a, and a negative character trait. Like it's equal parts vice and virtue, I think. It's funny, my wife and I were just talking last night about somebody we knew way back in, in the day who was like a, a, like a goth, like face paint, was in like a metal band, whatever. And now he's in the most buttoned up corporate job. He's like a VP of something, something. And she was like, isn't that funny? And we could think of two or three other people who were like the most skater punk, whatever, the most rebellious. And I said, you know, I, I have observed that phenomenon. And I've sometimes wondered if 
people who, who grew up that way, they have a really high tolerance for pain because often they were like, they hated their life at home or something, or they just, they had a high tolerance for being disliked in the So like, what's the highest form of pain when you're like a teenager, it's like being uncool and not right. being part of the, they had a high tolerance for that. Right. They almost reveled in it. Yeah. Like, yeah, they had this, like, give me all this shit. I'll handle it all. And I was like, there's something about willingness to eat shit that those like really rebellious types have that makes them often succeed in like succeed as in like money and title. I don't know if they're happy or not, but in the corporate world, which you wouldn't expect. And so anyway, there's something similar there that I think kind of answers the question you're asking, like, you know, how did I, how did I diverge from, from kind of eating the shit, I guess. And again, it's a vice and a virtue, right? So like, I have an unwillingness. I mean, the book that you just mentioned is called Don't Do Stuff You Hate. I have a very low tolerance for pain. And I'm like, I'm hardworking, but I'm also incredibly lazy. So like, I don't ever want to do work that I think is silly or, or that I'm not good at. Because um, it's like, well, why would I do something I'm not good at when somebody who, who does it well could do it instead? Right. And like, that's not that's not a positive character trait or virtue all the time. Ask my wife, like around the house or whatever, right? Like there's a laziness to it um, that I have to, you know, that I have to, to fight and overcome. And, and just a, a pain tolerance, like a willingness to just buckle down and do some hard shit. Um, you know, I have that fairly low. My brother is also an entrepreneur and we're very similar in a lot of ways, but he has an incredibly high pain tolerance. Like he can, he can go on these sprints where he's working 70 hours a week for months on end where I'm like, nope, not willing to do that. Yeah. I'm just not going to do it, right? And again, that's equal parts vice and virtue. There are times where I wish I had a high, I was like willing to get off my ass and push myself more, but to the, the benefit, and if you've ever met, if you've ever met a coder, uh, a computer coder, the most innovative coders are the laziest coders because they're the ones that are like, I hate doing this task. Let yeah. me go spend time figuring out if I can build some new way to automate it, right? And they're innovative, that doesn't necessarily mean their innovations are always good, but they're really innovative because they're, but the coder who's like, I'm just willing to do the grunt work all the time. That's like a positive attribute, especially at an entry level. But if you're always willing, if your tolerance for eating shit is really high and it never gets lower over time, then you're, you're always going to eat shit. Yeah. Right. So I think mine is maybe too low, but that's been a benefit too. So like the fact I have no skills, I'm like, okay. I remember just looking at college majors and being like, well, uh, I don't know, like PR, I guess I could do that. I don't know what it is, but it's like, it sounds like talking or something. Journalism, I could try that. And I did journalism and I was like, no, I like writing, but I don't like they're grading my writing too much. I don't like that. I want to write the way I want to. Basically, I want no accountability. (laughs) I just want to do what I want to do. Everything that I was at, like marketing, I guess, it doesn't really mean anything. I ended up majoring in philosophy and political science. You know why? Because I looked at the courses I had already taken and was like, oh, I already have enough credits. I'm good. (laughs) Same. It's literally the same exact boat. Literally the same exact boat. All the way down to, I I looked at journalism. It's just like, I don't want people telling me whether my writing is good or not. Literally the exact same boat. Yeah. And, And so when I, when I got into my career, I'm like, okay, you know, I, I can write well. I can talk to people. I started, I worked, I worked in a, a political office. I was like the, you know, the assist, legislative assistant. So I'm taking like calls from constituents and writing like letters and response and that kind of stuff. Um, and that stuff was all very easy for me. It's just talking and writing to people. Right. Um, I didn't like hone it as a skill. 
uh, before then or like practice it or think this is a skill I need to add to my Rolodex. I just was like, oh, I can do this job. And then through the job, I learned all kinds of ways. Like I, I do learn very fast and I do apply myself and work hard. I don't want to make it sound like I'm like not working hard, but again, that low tolerance when a task starts to suck or a job starts to suck, I'm out of there like so quick. Yeah. So quick. I cannot go very long where other people can go longer to, to their credit often, not always to their credit, but often, right. Cause you can, you can have again, too high of a tolerance. But so I think that's kind of the difference. And like, I just, I just stumbled through avoiding anything that felt painful or uncomfortable. And that again, rather than like trying to find some super skill and hone it, I just kept going where things were more fun and easier and came more naturally to me. And I kept eliminating more and more things that didn't feel good. And what I ended up with was, Hey, I've got this idea for my first company Praxis and all the things necessary to build it. I had, well, I didn't have them, but I had a network who had them and I had built the social capital where I could go and tap that. And like, I sort of discovered when I had this idea, and I was like, that sounds really cool. I got to build this. What does it take to build it? Well, it takes a whole bunch of different stuff, a lot of which I can do, but a lot of which I can't, but I know people who can do it and I can get them to do it for me. And it was like, oh, that is a skill set. Yeah. That's like entrepreneurship, right? I kind of like discovered, I guess I'm not useless because I think I always felt like I was just secretly like faking it. Like, how do I keep getting paid at these jobs? I'm like, I don't know how to do anything, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, well, I love the, the, I, the pain tolerance analogy because that it's so true. Like, cause I always, I always felt like I had a high pain tolerance physically. You're I was a tough always, guy, dude. I can tell you got the shaved head and the beard. <laughs> everyone with shaved head and a beard can handle I, a lot of pain. Again, I'm, I'm good at faking it, but, but yeah, like <laughs> I, I was always the, the smallest kid in school and I like, but I still played sports. I played, I still played football when I was a kid. I was always getting hurt. Cause I just, I didn't care. Like pain never bothered me. So I never thought of myself as being low pain tolerance, but when you put it that way, it's like, yeah, like if I couldn't sit through a two hour lecture in school, like people thought I had IBS in school because I would have to get up three or four <laughs> times in the middle of a lecture just to get outside and walk around. It's like, I just, I can't, I couldn't sit still. And so that's like a low, that's a very low pain. I was like, I couldn't sit and listen to someone else talk for two hours. Like I've, I have such a low tolerance when it comes to that. But I, I, I got to give, I got to give credit in, because, you know, if you're like me, you, you realize that about yourself. You're like, okay. I can't stand, this is just, and you look around and you're like, well, it seems like, especially as you get older, maybe not when you're like middle school or high school, other people think it's funny that you can't, you know, stand it and they can't either. But as you get older, you're like, is this like, am I like a lesser person yes. that I, that I don't enjoy sitting here listening to this guy talk? Am mm -hmm. I arrogant because I think he's yes. an idiot and isn't saying anything interesting or am I right? And you would question one of my, one of my earliest jobs it was actually, I had, I had three different jobs in the state legislature. It was like just a three-year period. I worked for three different state reps. And the very last one, and the one where I was like, okay, this is it. And then I'm out of here. He is this wild and crazy guy. And he was kind of like this libertarian guy. And he was like, he was like, he's a good friend of mine, Leon Drolette. And I had never met someone before who was so willfully irresponsible. And he just like completely owned it rolled with it and it worked. I mean, literally to the level where like utility bills would come in the mail and he's like, Oh, it's such a pain to pay him. And he'd be like, he just shove them in a drawer. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? You never pay your bills. And he's like, 
oh, of course I pay my bills. He's like, but why would I look at all, all this paper? I, it's all confused. I don't know what I'm so. I just wait until they call me and say, we're about to turn off your power. And I say, oh, don't do that. And they say, well, you owe us the last three months. Oh, okay. Well, here's my credit card. He's like, it's right. just easier. Just wait for them to call you. And he's like, and I had such a sense of like, I'm very type A and like organized. Okay. That would stress me out. I couldn't live that way. But something about him being like, why would I write out a check on this piece of paper and all this? I hate doing that. I'd rather just wait till they call me and threaten to turn off my power. It's easier. And I'm like, huh. I remember him being like all the other state reps I'd work for when they would get invited to an event, you know, they would feel this obligation as a state representative to their district. They got to go to the chicken dinner to give an award to a retiring police officer in their district. Cause you got to do that kind of stuff to stay. And he would be like, what is it? Does it sound fun? Is there anyone? It, Am, am I going to get good media coverage from it? And I'm like, well, probably not. I don't want to go. Just tell, just tell him I don't want to. He'd be like, I don't want to do it. He'd be like, throw away all of the mail unless it's an article about me or a check. <laughs> like, and and he, he had this incredible instinctive like understanding of the 80-20 rule, right? Like he just knew there were a couple things he had to do well to, to stay elected and, and to make his constituents happy. And everything else was so minimal everybody else stressed about it. And he's like, if it's not fun, I'm not going to do it. And I, I'd never observed someone live that way at all. Yeah. And I was like, and he's like extreme, like too extreme even for me. But I think I, that was the first time I gave myself permission to indulge those feelings in myself without feeling like I shouldn't feel that way. Well, right. I, I should be enjoying this sermon. It's my fault that I'm bored. It's because I'm shallow and immature, right? right. Like, no, it's a shitty sermon and it's a waste of time. I should be goofing around instead, you know? <laughs> so, so how do you fight that fear? Cause for me, it's like, I never, I never cared. Like I never wanted to be rich. I didn't need everyone to like me, but it's like, I gotta be able to pay the bills. So like, how do you, you know, that, that was always my fear was just like, well, I, if, if I just allow myself to be like that, I, I, how do I keep a job? So, yeah. so I, and I guess, I guess you kind of gave me the answer already. You said it's that 80, 20 rules. Like you have to know that, yeah, there are still certain things that you just have to do. But but maybe the the value is in figuring out what are the things that you that you have to do that are necessity and what can you actually cut out. Yeah, if you're like, okay, how could I make the most money for doing the least amount of things that I dislike? Like that's a really powerful question. It seems obvious. It seems like oh, of course we're all always asking that, but really most of the time we're not. We have this sort of background assumption that we have to do certain things a certain way. And if you step back and ask that, like I, I and and this is like my one of my few things that I do really, really well, it's my gift and my curse. I can see people's potential and I can see how the, the steps that they could take to, to live a life that they would love given their own preferences. Yeah. And, and I can sometimes help them get there, but it's very frustrating because you can't always, right? So like, I, I know people who are super passionate about certain things, film, let's say, and they're doing, we're working some job they hate. And I know, cause I've seen them in action that within six months, I could have them earning the same amount of money doing, having a film critic, YouTube channel and a, and a paid Patreon where they do, and they do all this stuff that they already like doing. I can see this path for them, but they don't, they, they truly, they don't believe you can get paid enough money to live if you're not mostly doing things that you hate. Right. And like, until you believe that you can't really see the opportunities. Now I'm not saying it's like easy, like, Oh, I want to eat Cheetos and play video games all day. So I guess if I just believe in that, I'll make money doing that. Like, no, of course not. But it's, it's like, it's like anything good, anything that you enjoy. It's still hard. 
right? This is one of the points that I try to emphasize in that book, don't do stuff you hate. Hate is not the same as hard. That's not don't do stuff that's hard. And you can tell if you watch, like I have kids, watch my kids playing like a video game, right? They're mad. They're frustrated. Sometimes they're sweating, right? You're trying to beat that final boss for like three days and you can't do it and you're doing it over and over. And it's like, there's a sense in which it's really hard work, but it's not work that you hate, yeah. right? Yeah. Like it's, if, you've ever, if you've ever worked out or run a marathon or done any physical challenge, I ran a marathon with my wife like 15 years ago. I'll never do that again. The training was hard. It was horrible. But I didn't hate it because I wanted to have that under my belt to say that I ran a marathon. And like, it was the kind of hard that was worth it. So it's still hard, but there's, right. it's, it's, there's some meaning to it. It's not, it's not making you hate your life and hate yourself, yes. but it's also not easy. So I think that's a really important thing. It's not like, oh, well, I wish I could just like smoke cigars all day and get paid to do it. Um, no, it doesn't work like that. And actually you would be really unhappy doing that. Humans it, need a struggle. They really do. It, it is. It is so true because again, like, yeah, I grew up just thinking, oh, I'm lazy and I, I just got to kind of fight through this. And then the light bulb for me clicked. Like when I just, when I started podcasting, I, was, I started doing some video editing work for people just, just a couple years ago. Because I remembered when I was in high school, I was like, oh, I really liked video editing. I just, I got away from it in high school because I thought it wasn't a serious thing to do. And I just, a couple years ago, I was <laughs> isn't, like, isn't that funny, by the way? Yeah. Like, I'm sure everybody around you in high school will be like, you know, uh, you should focus on, uh, you know, whatever plastics or whatever, right. you know, whatever the businessman, you know, yes. uh, firefighter, whatever the career. It, it was always editing. law school for me. It was always law. That was always the thing that yeah. was like, this is Eric, you know, you, you're great. You're a great communicator. You're a great speaker. So you should, you should go to law school. And, and so I was like, all right. I mean, everyone's telling me that's the only way I can make money. I guess that's what I'm going to have to do. And, and who would have known that video editing would become so like the amount of video in the world and the amount of editing that needs to be done and that people get paid to do has just X. I mean, I would love to see that graph, yeah. right? Yeah, I, I could be a millionaire at this point. If I stuck with it. But, <laughs> but that it, it was, I mean, that was the light bulb for me. It was like, oh, I really enjoy, and again, it took me until I was 30 years old, but I was like, I really enjoy this and I'm working hard at this. So I'm like, okay, I do know how to work hard. I, I, I figured it out. Oh, I can work hard. I just have to pick something I enjoy doing. And then from there, figure out, okay, how do I make money doing it? And that just, yes. that route just isn't something that's taught to you. Well, and here's, and here's one of the big secrets. And this is one of the things that we hammer on a lot at Career Hackers and just I've been talking about for years. You said you found something you like doing, then you got to figure out how to get paid to do it. There's, a, there's an in-between step there that a lot of people skip, which is find something you like doing, you start doing it even though nobody's paying you. Yes. Then you find out how to get paid because that's how you're going to get paid. I have so many people are like, well, I really love this, but I can't seem to find anyone to pay me for it. And I'm like, I Googled you you know, oh, I really love uh, doing, making beats for people, but you can't make enough money. And, I, and I'm like, I Googled you and I, haven't, I didn't find anything anywhere. You don't have any beats out there. How would anyone know, right? You do it free until you figure out how to get paid for it. That's how, that's how that's it works. You don't point. sit around yeah. and wait for somebody to come in and say, let me pay you to do this thing that you've never done publicly before. Yeah. Well, that's such a good point. Again, you know, I'm working with comics now and I'm helping them we put together contracts when they get, when they get deals, I'm helping them do some marketing stuff. And I could have just like ran. Yeah. I could have said, Oh, four years ago, this is just something I want to do. And just started going up to comics and be like, Hey, can I help you with whatever contract you have? And instead 
I just like, I was helping out friends just for free. No one was paying me. I was just like, uh, some friends needed, they knew I had the legal background. I said, can you just look over this thing for me? And I just did it for free, just for fun. And then I was like, oh, a lot of people are asking me to do this. Maybe I, this is something I can actually do beyond just helping out friends and I can actually make money doing it. And that's, again, I'm still very early stages of this stuff, but it's all something I kind of had to learn trial and error. And that's why I love what you're doing with Praxis and Crash is you're teaching this, this strategy that I've kind of had to learn. Again, it took me until my early 30s to even figure out that this was a possibility, but you're teaching now with 17, 18, 19 year olds, right? Like, like kind of young adults about yeah, this process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it took me, it took me a long time too. Like I'm kind of, I'm kind of slow and, you know, that's one of the downsides of this, of this approach that I kind of have of like, yeah, just don't do stuff I hate and whatever, <clears throat> because I've never had a really concrete goal. That's like, this is what I want to go do in that ambition. I look back, like if I had to do over again, I could have started starting companies when I was in my teens but I didn't, I didn't think of that. I didn't know I could do that, whatever. So like, it took me a long time too to kind of get here through, through the process of elimination. But yeah, I mean, working with, with people early in their careers and really just focusing on, okay, figure out where's that nexus of stuff I don't hate, stuff I don't suck at and stuff people will pay me for. Yeah. And anything that fits those three, do it. Yeah. It doesn't, you don't have to ask if it's the perfect thing or the best thing, just do it because you yeah. won't know until you do it. And as you do it, you'll start to get a narrower field of what fits those boxes. You'll do something. Okay. I don't think I suck at this. I don't think I hate it. And this person's willing to pay me. I'll try it. And then you realize, Oh, I do kind of suck at it or, yeah. Oh, I do hate it. Or, Oh, they're not willing to pay me anymore. Uh, and then you kind of, you keep, you know, you keep working on that and you end up figuring out what your sort of super skills are, which is like a super skill is like where two normal skills collide. Right. So like, th so think of this. Because nobody, I mean, you're, let's be, let's be frank. You're probably not going to be the best in the world at any one skill. Like the odds that you're going to be the best anything are so, so low if you're just narrowing it to one, one criteria. But when you start to look at intersections of skills, then it actually gets surprisingly easy. So I, I like to use this example. There's some guy, I don't know if he's still around, but I came across years ago. It's like a, uh, it's like a blacksmith YouTube channel. Now this guy, I guarantee he's not the best blacksmith in the world. I guarantee he's not the best YouTuber in the world, but he's the best blacksmith YouTuber yeah. in the world. And that turns out to be a market that he can monetize. If there's 2000 people that love learning about blacksmithing on YouTube and they're all worth, you know, $3 a month. Well, that's probably what he would make starting out as, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you just start to realize these, these strange nexuses of skills. I mean, like you, that's a great one that, you know, there's a great book called uh, Niche Down, by the way, which I recommend, but you know how to read contracts. You're also a, a comedian, right? The ability to say, hey, let me help you figure out if this is a good deal. And then you have, and then you have marketing skills. You layer those on top of each other. That's really interesting. You do it for free for a couple of friends. Now you have a portfolio. You spin up your, put up your you know, flag like, hey, I have, these are some of the comics I've worked with. Here are some of the services I offer, contract negotiations and legal review you know, marketing and basic business setup, blah, 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 you know, filing you for an LLC so you can reduce your taxes and write things off or whatever, whatever you put together as your package. And you go find, you know, you do it for some friends and you go find somebody and you literally like build a landing page for them for free, email it to them and say, Hey, I love your comedy. Your website looked a little out of date. I built this for you. If you like it, I can, I can uh, set this up, get it spinning and we can get, you know, whatever I can set up lead capture and we can do all this other stuff. 
And, um, you know, if you're interested, let me know, I'll take a cut of revenue or whatever, whatever your thing is, right? Like you, you can stack those skills up and that's, that's what takes time. That's the part that I, I try to emphasize with people is that it's very hard to just identify when you're like 18 here are the three skills that I do well that when stacked on top of each other, the combination has really high return and it's really rare. That's where I'm going to go all in. You may be able to, but it's very rare. Usually you figure it out because there's often skills lurking that you didn't know you had. And the things that you're going to get paid the most for are often things that you didn't even know were skills because they've always come easy to you. And you just assume they come easy to everyone else. You just assume, well, why would anyone pay for that? It's just, it's easy. It isn't. It is for you, but it isn't. And, and you have to get out in the world and get context to tell that. So that's it's kind of that combination. Like try not to do stuff you hate, take any opportunity you can early on until, unless and until you start to hate it and then move on to the next one and just get as many experiences as you can and get as much feedback from the world as you can. And when you start to find people keep coming to me about this thing, people yeah. keep asking me to look over their contracts. People keep asking me to design logos for them. That just seems easy to me. I'm not even that good at it. Why do they keep asking me? You start to discover those things. And that's such a good way to overcome the, uh, you know, I still have this like this immigrant mindset because my family didn't, it, it was less than a hundred years ago. My, my family came to America and it's like, I, there's still this mindset of like, you just have to work and, and work's miserable, but that's just what you have to do. And it's hard to overcome. Again, I always had that kind of guilty mindset of like, oh man, I, I'm sitting in this air conditioned office and, and I only, you know, I get to sit down all day and my grandfather was doing manual labor. My dad was doing manual labor. Like, who am I to complain? But the idea of like, hey, if there's something you want to do, do it and do it for free. Do it on the side. Do it in the evenings. Do it on the weekends. So you you know you're still you're still doing what you need to do to make money and pay the bills. And you're still you're still pursuing that thing that you want to actually pursue. And it, you don't have to drop everything to, to try to pursue it and say I'm I'm chasing my dream. I'm doing what I love. You're saying, hey, let me see. Let me see if there is actually a demand for the skill that I have. And let me try to work with people. And, and maybe that is eventually can be something that grows into something. And, and, that, and that's the best way. I mean, there are those rare moments that some people can have where they literally make a leap because people talk about like making a leap in your career. Usually you're not jumping over a chasm. What happens is like, you know, you've got your normal career that's going like this and it's sort of growing and maybe you're not that into it, but you're working on stuff. You're doing other stuff. And that other stuff is down here. Let's say in the money-making potential or even just the traction you're getting. And it starts to grow. It starts to outpace. And at some point it intersects, it, it surpasses your day job to where the leap is really just like sliding onto one of those moving walkways, right? right. You're like, oh, I'm just being pulled into. So, you know, I mean, I'll give you even an example. There, there, there are leap moments at times, but when I started Praxis, I had spent um, several years, like the previous five years at least, increasingly writing articles, giving talks, doing, you know, um, doing interviews. I had published a book on very similar themes to what the vision of Praxis was on how to live free and how the education system is uh, mostly wasteful and how you don't need to go to college. And I was like increasingly, you know, kind of started like the broad philosophical stuff, but I had sort of built up a bit of an audience. I had built up, I knew that if I wanted to go speak to an audience of college students, I could get that done because people were inviting me to do it already. And that was just, that had nothing to do with my day job. I didn't need to do any of those things for my job. 
I just did them because I enjoyed them and I kept doing them and I did them very steadily. I blogged every day. Um, I was doing just a lot of very active on Facebook, which used to be cool at the time. Um, and then it came to the point where when I got the idea for this company, I was like, I already have the audience. And before I didn't need to raise any money or anything. When I started, I literally just had somebody make a site and was like, I'm creating this program. And I started writing articles about it and going and giving talks. I would go to college campuses and tell everyone they should drop out and join my program that didn't exist yet. I uh, just had like a website and a sign up form. And I would get like standing ovations because I had learned I was good at talking and I was good at ca casting that vision. And that's how I got my first handful of customers. And when I got my first handful of customers, I was like, oh, I could quit my job now. Right. And I could, I could make this happen. Um, now I ended up, I, I did end up raising a small amount of money. I got a check for $150,000 from a guy who I knew from my work at this nonprofit. And he's like, I love what you're doing. I want to fund it. And I'm like, I'm not raising any money. I'm just bootstrapping it. And I'm just going to kind of see how it goes doing it on the side. No, no, no. I really want to fund it. But I had, he had seen the traction I already had. I already was out there giving talks. I already had customers and I was like, okay, I could either wait six months to quit my job until the revenue is there. Or I could take this 150K, quit my job now and hire an assistant to help me. I'll do it, right? But again, I wasn't like, I can't, I can't start this business until I have money. I just started it. Yeah. I just started on the side based on what I had, the foundation I'd already laid. And I just kept growing it until the transition from my day job was a snap, you yeah. know? So I want to hear about a potential mistake you've made because everything sounds so great up till now. So let, let me ask you about this. Let me ask you, well, let me, let me see, let me see if you would call this a mistake because you and I met in DC, which DC is antithetical to everything <laughs> you've talked about, everything we've talked about here for the last hour. Why did you decide to go to DC? Yeah. And it's one of those things where like, I, if I had known enough when I was younger, I would have loved to fast track the learning process and not had to learn all these things the hard way and skipped all that. Right. Just like just like when I went into work at the state legislature, I was like, oh, I'll go into politics. That's how I'll spread freedom. And it took me two and a half years of working there and observing and a lot of my own like intellectual pursuits to realize politics is not the way to do it. And there's no way in hell I want to be in politics. Like I genuinely thought I wanted to, right? It took me almost three years to learn that. I wish I would have known ahead. Maybe I wouldn't have listened if someone told me because I'm stubborn. But similar with DC, it was like, okay, if it's not politics, what is it? So I was working at a nonprofit in Michigan, kind of running like programs for college students, trying to you know spread the ideas of freedom and, and liberty and running these various programs. Uh, I was right before Ron Paul. And then when Ron Paul happened, suddenly it went from nobody knowing what the hell I'm talking about to everybody being really excited. Like, oh, this is like Ron Paul, like freedom and liberties. It was amazing to watch, to be there one year yeah. on campuses. And then the next year, oh, I bet people today don't even understand because I don't think anything like this could happen again this obscure Ron Paul dude was like the like college students everywhere, liberal, conservative, like everybody loved him because at the time the drug war was still a big deal and neither Democrats or Republicans were really doing anything. And he was talking openly against that, right? Inflation at the time wasn't a big deal, but the housing crisis had happened and people didn't understand, or I mean, inflation wasn't talked about like it was a big, anyway, this is crazy. I don't need to get into all that. But so I was running programs for this nonprofit and I was kind of like, okay, I enjoy this. I'm working with young people. I'm kind of spreading ideas that I love. I'm doing some talking and some writing. I'm organizing and rallying people. I kind of created this program and I was making all this hilarious t-shirts and swag and there's some marketing stuff involved and just some, I learned some skills that I loved. I, I, hey, I kind of like marketing. I kind of like, you know, 
And I got this offer to go work for an organization in DC doing something very similar. They had kind of seen what I was doing in, in Michigan and were like, hey, come do this on a, on a nationwide level. And I knew the organization. I really liked it. I liked the ideas they stood for, but I, didn't, I knew I didn't want to live in DC, but they were going to pay me like two and a half times what I was making in Michigan. And so my wife and I were married. We had a young, a young uh, baby at the time. And I said, well, I'm really excited about this organization in this role, but I know we don't want to raise our kids in DC. Like, I know we don't want to live in DC. And I know what happens to you if you live in DC. I had seen it even in the state capital of Michigan. When you live in Lansing and you're a lifer around there, you just, it's like a mini version of DC. You lose right. your soul, right? I mean, just go look at the architecture of any state capital uh, around the country. And you can, of course, you lose your soul working around that shit all day. Um, so I said to my wife, what if we did this? What if we, what if I take the job and then I'm, we make a commitment to each other? that we're going to live in DC for three years max. And then at the end of three years, no matter what, we're going to move. Cause we had always kind of increasingly wanted to move out of Michigan. Anyway, we're going to pick a place that we love and we're going to try to move somewhere awesome. And we're just going to do it no matter what, even if I have to quit my job and just start all over, we're going to do it. We're not going to stay in DC. Cause if, if we keep staying there and getting conditioned, well, the pay is good, even though I don't love it. Well, it just, it turns you into something I don't want to be. So we made that agreement. Of course, I didn't tell the, the organization that. I came and took the job. And I kind of saw it as like, all right, I'm going to be here for three years max. I'm going to make the most of it. And I'm going to just try to have fun. Now, I didn't, I mean, because I had kids, we adopted another child while we were there. I didn't go to like happy hours and all that stuff almost ever. Occasionally I did, but I wasn't really like in the social scene or any of that stuff um, other than work. But I tried to like enjoy my work, enjoy the fact that there is uh, a big city has different things to offer than a small city. DC has some things that are kind of cool uh, for a brief period of time. Right. Let's get the most out of it. Let's try to do all the stuff. But I knew there was an end date and that was my lifeline. And we didn't make it three years. After two years, I had worked my way into a fundraising role at the organization because I sort of realized, okay, I'm running programs. I got pretty good at running programs. That's cool. But where else do you go with that? I don't want to just keep doing this. And I, and I started to learn about myself that I'm a builder, not a manager. I like to build things and start things. I don't like to run them I build it. Okay. Let me hand it off to somebody else and go build the next thing. So I was like, well, what could I do fundraising? I could travel all over the country and meet with self-made millionaires and ask them for money. I've never done that before. It sounds kind of scary, but I bet if I learn that skill, I can do freaking anything. Yeah. If I want to start something later. I'll know how to ask people for money. I'll know how to raise money for it. And I was like, okay, that's going to be a challenge. And I did, I made that, made that leap. And everybody around me was like, you're crazy. You're so good at running programs. You love working with college students. You've been doing it for the last 10 years. Why would you suddenly go fundraisers are just like these boring mercenaries, you know, like, why would you go do that? I'm like, no, nah, I want to learn it. I want to do it. It sounds cool. It sounds new. So when I took that job, I was on the road so much. I was like, now's my chance to get out of DC. So I came to the company. I didn't, I didn't ask. I said, I'm moving. I'm going to work remotely. And they had a policy. They didn't let people work remotely. Oh, we tried it once. It never worked. And I was like, hey, guys. And I knew that I was doing well, and they liked me. And I was like, hey, I'm moving. Um, my wife and I are looking at houses and other places. Um, and, uh, but I'll keep doing my job. You won't notice any difference. I'll, I'll come back once a month for meetings and stuff. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. We need to talk about that. Let me, let me talk to so-and-so, and we'll get back to you. I was like, okay. Month goes by. They never got back to me. Hey, just letting you know, we're looking at some houses pretty seriously. It'll probably be another couple of months. Oh, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, you're wait. I well, we, we got to talk about that. Okay, whatever. A month goes by. Hey guys, we put on an offer. It was accepted. We're moving in two months. So don't worry. I'll be back every month. 
they 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 were afraid to call they were afraid to say yeah. anything because they yeah. knew that i was going to move it. they knew that they couldn't right. call my bluff right and so i just did it yeah i just did it and we moved to charleston south carolina and loved it so that's kind of the the way that i saw it and approached it um I mean, to this day, we joke about like how much we hated DC. Like now that we're not there anymore, when we were there, we had to by choice choose because we knew we were there for a short period of time and there's no sense in being there and then like hating it every day. We made that choice. And so we decided we are going to make the most of it. And we're not going to have a negative attitude. We're going to try to find the positives and focus on it. But as soon as we're out of there, now all we do is like, oh my God, right. DC, aren't you glad we got out of there? Yeah. <laughs> Well, and but by the end, by the end, I literally had that song in my head. This is when we made them move. We gotta get out of this place. <laughs> Every day I would come home from work and I would have that song in my head. Yeah. I'm just like, I gotta get out of this city. But that's, I, I think there's two lessons in there for people who are doing work that they know they don't want to be doing. And number one is find something in what you're doing that is valuable that you can you know, you can take away when you're done that job. Find whatever little thing it is. Even if, like if you're just doing manual labor, it's like, okay, listen to a podcast that's valuable to you so that you know you don't feel like you're wasting your time. Like something little in that job that, that you know you can get value out of. And then number two is have some sort of plan for how am I going to move out of this so that I, I, I don't have to think, well, I'm stuck in this for 30, 40 years. Like have, even if it is three, four, five, 10 years down the line, it's like have some kind of idea of, of how you can transition and do something you actually want to do. Cause that having that hope, this is what I've found. Cause again, I'm kind of, I'm in that transition phase right now, having that hope, like lets me get through that next day. If I know oh, this day is going to suck. I just, I don't want to have to do this work. It's like, okay, I know that I'm one day closer to doing what I want to do because I'm starting, yeah. I'm, I'm just starting to formulate that plan. And yeah. that like that powers me through the day. And then, and then making that commitment to each other. And we told, we didn't tell the DC friends because I didn't want them knowing that I was coming and planning to move in two years, but or three years. Right. But we told our friends back home as well. We were like, yeah, we're, we're doing this, but we're not going to stay there longer than three years. We've made a commitment. And that kind of like forced my hand in it. And that was, oh, living in DC was probably the highest level of eating shit that I've, that I've tolerated. And when you think about it, it's like, so cushy it's like exactly I, I was paid well i worked in this office it was like this ridiculous like high rise sort of thing and i'm like at these nonprofit free luncheons all right. the time and all the, like it wasn't it wasn't that bad right but that wasn't the scene we wanted and it and i could tell it would make me dead inside if i was there for very long so like knowing that there was there was a strategic reason where like i know i want to live in a place like at the beach or somewhere awesome I know I want to be able to travel and work remotely, which was not a thing back then. And I know I want to be doing something that pays me enough to do that and like that I enjoy. I can't see how to do that now sitting here in, in Michigan working at this place. But I can see this opportunity that just came. If I take this and I crush it and then I go and I, I keep that job but go move somewhere else. Because the other thing, a big part of it was geographical arbitrage. I was in Michigan getting paid a Michigan salary. Right. Now, this is less true now that remote work is so big. These things are just starting to level. But the difference was massive. Like for the same job in D.C., you would get paid sometimes double. Like I was getting paid more than that. No, it wasn't the same job. It was a move up. But if I had moved up in Michigan, it would have been like a 25% bump, right? right. This was like 2.2 like times. And so I was like, okay, D.C. is way more expensive, but that's okay we can just live basically the same quality of life. It was actually a lower quality of life on two and a half times money. Because <laughs> right. um, it's just it's like insane. what you had yeah. to tolerate. Yeah. But we can, we can handle that for a couple of years because then I'm gonna go move somewhere that I love and that's also cheaper because I knew I didn't wanna live in a big city anyway. 
and I get to take that salary with me. I'm going to take that with me. And now I'm going to, I'm going to make this move. That's going to get me a higher quality of life. It's going to get me out of Michigan to a place I want to be with a pay that if I move there directly, I could never get it. If I moved directly to South Carolina and started working at uh, a place in South Carolina, doing something similar, my pay would have bumped maybe 25, 30%. Yeah. Similar to Michigan. Right. But if I do the stopover in DC, I bring that with me. And I, I was like, okay, because I had these things in mind, I was able to tolerate it and handle right. it. And I know you said you, you missed out on the social scene in DC. I, all I did was the social scene in DC and you didn't miss much. I mean, they, they would have these kind of these formal happy hours. Like I, well, I got kicked out of some of them. Cause I would like, I would set up like beer pong tables, like in these formal happy hours when people were in suits, I would set up like a beer pong table, start playing beer pong. And again, I, I, no one ever appreciated my genius, but I was like caught in between Eric, because the, the other people who were really frugal and cheap were like the really young interns and stuff. And they were all single and they were up for like drinking natty ice until right. like two in the morning. And I'm like, right. I'm an, I'm an old guy. I got a family. I'm not going to do that. So the people I worked with who were more my age, they would go out to a, a bar nearby and have a really good cocktail for a few hours. Well, that's fun. But the cocktails were like $12 a piece. Right, and I'm like, right. I could go home with my wife and buy like a six pack for eight bucks and watch the, the football game. And I can actually hear people talk. So why yeah. am I going to go to this fancy yep. cocktail bar? So I like, I, you know, the, the mature people, they had more <laughs> money than I had. Cause I was trying, I was trying to raise a family and trying to adopt a daughter and they were all just single with more money than they knew what to do with the younger interns who were also poor. They were like, they didn't have money, but right. they had the, the wild stuff. Yep. You know yep. what I mean? <laughs> That's what right. I, I, I say, I didn't make a lot of good choices in my life, but the one good choice I made was I did DC perfectly at the right age. I, I did it. I interned there a couple summers yes. in college and then I got out and, and that's the right age to do DC. Cause yep. it is, it can be a fun city as long as yeah, you can, you can leverage that scene. And, yeah. and like, I would not recommend, you know, when we moved to Charleston, South Carolina, phenomenal place to raise kids, great place to raise your family. I wouldn't recommend a young single person moving there. Go right. somewhere that's got more activity, more dynamism. Even if you have to suffer a lower quality of life to live in a smaller apartment, if you, there's opportunity there, right? So like the, some of these equations change with phases in life as well and your preferences. Yeah. Isaac, I know you have to go, but I promised you a little bit of NBA talks. So let me, I'll ask you just one, one basketball question. Which player has done more to change the game of basketball, Steph Curry or Michael Jordan? Man, that's a great question. From a, from like a macro world perspective, I think it's Michael Jordan. Like a, from a like changing the way that the world views basketball is Michael Jordan. I mean, just what he did. It's so, it's we're so far removed from it now that most people and like I'm old enough to that I lived through it. It's incredible. Like basketball was maybe similar to like what hockey is now or what golf was before tiger woods, right? Like, yeah, it's a sport. It's a thing. There are people who are really into it. Yeah, it's neat, you know, but like he made it. I mean, the idea of like athletes having their own shoe, he invented that or at least mass. I mean, there were some runners that Nike sure. had or whatever, but the idea of uh, like, branding a part like Gatorade and Michael Jordan. Now this is just everywhere. We take it all for granted. Like he was just everywhere and he was bigger. It was incredible. Steph Curry in terms of changing the way that the NBA game itself is actually played. So like they had the Jordan rules for Mike, they would, they would, some teams would, would play different defense against him than they would play against other teams to beat him up a little bit, but it was basically just let's be rougher on this guy, right? Like, and that didn't work after a couple of years when he put on some muscle. 
Steph, the way the game is played, he changed like to the core and like, and it rippled all the way through to the youth leagues, right? Where like everyone's strategy. I mean, you look at whole new defensive schemes have been invented to deal with Steph and the type of shooter that have come in his footsteps, like Devin Booker and Damian Lillard. And like these guys that are the, the definition of a point guard has totally changed. The idea of an off ball guy being dominant, the idea of a, a shooter, like, you know, the old guys that used to run around screens all day, like Reggie Miller, or Rip Hamilton, also being able to create his own shot as a point guard, right? Like just the way that it changes the entire game, like Steph and what they built at the Warriors, that's all NBA teams are like building to stop now. And other teams are trying to emulate. So, and that's rippled down. You see the college game started to change and then high school. And then, so I think like endogenously within the game itself, he has changed it more but in terms of impact on the broader world outside of the game, Mike, no question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't really disagree with that. I don't think the game has changed more, changed more fundamentally since like the early dunker, since like Dr. J or Kareem, like when was the last time there was such a significant change in how people play? I, I think it was when dunking became cool. Cause it was even it, banned. It, it's one of those weird, like these things take a long time. I know. Um, yeah. I remember when the shot clock was introduced, like reading about this and it took a long time it's actually in one of my favorite books. The uh, I think it's in the Not So Wild Wild West, if I remember. Maybe not. It's in, it's about institutional entrepreneurship, whatever. Anyway, but it took a long time for strategies because the coaches who had been in the pre-shot clock era, they were all these seasoned coaches and stuff, and their strategy was like you know like the old Dean Smith, who's like what do they call it, where they literally just spread the floor and hold the ball if they have a lead and just run out the clock. And so right. the way they recruited, the way they coached, all this stuff had been built under that incentive structure. You change the shot clock. And it was like the same coaches are still there. The same talent is still there. So you didn't see a change overnight in strategy. It took like a whole new generation. The addition of the three-point line took a really long time to reach what I would say is like its final most absurd conclusion, which is today's right. NBA, which is like mathematically, it makes sense. But it took a while because you introduced this three-point line. You still got the same coaches. You still got the same talent. You still got guys. And you got the guys in high school or middle school who are coaching guys who are going to be in the league in 10 or 20 years, they're not going to change overnight because the three point lines introduced. So it takes like a new couple new cycles of generations before people start to build it into the strategy. And now it's like this nice add on. And then it's like a must have. And then it's like, Oh, some teams do it all the time. And then it's like a, that's where we start. Yeah. That's like the core of the game at this point, you know? So it's just interesting to watch these things unfold. And I think Steph's combination of, getting to that point where like people realize just strategically, it makes more sense to take more threes and guys have grown up shooting from distance from so much longer. They can all hit threes. Now big men can hit threes yeah. every and like realizing that a Steph Curry shot from the logo with a guy guarding him two seconds into the shot clock is actually statistically a pretty good shot to right. take. Like once you put those pieces together, you're like, oh boy, this is this changes things. That's the craziest thing is seeing those big guys seeing seeing Embiid hit a three pointer, and you're just like that. As a kid, you just that would have there was not a single big man who could have done no. it. No, Carl in Anthony league. Towns just right. won the three point contest. Yeah, yeah, it, it's insane. How did you get into basketball? Because if I this is going to sound like a minor insult, but I would have pegged you as like a soccer guy. How did you get into <laughs> basketball, dude? I spent my whole life making fun of soccer people. <laughs> okay. Okay. That was, that was another thing in DC, all these DC yeah. guys with their suits, they would all pretend to be soccer fans. Yeah. It was so weird. It was like, they wanted to be a sports fan, but they had to pretend to be soccer because it's more European. I don't know, but right. 
I, I played, um, I played soccer once when I was a kid. And then I played once in, in high school, I, I was like, I'm going to do this as conditioning for basketball. And I had a blast. It's really fun to play. Um, and it was good conditioning for basketball, but no, I grew up playing baseball first. That was my first love. And then I started to discover basketball and I was actually a lot better at baseball, but basketball, I just started to love a lot more. And that was again, right in this era when Jordan was coming up and basketball was just so cool. It was just so cool, you know, and I still love baseball, but it was so, um, you know, so I always played basketball and I was never like great. I was, I was always good for like, you know, five rebounds, five fouls and, you know, five points. Right. Right. That's Um, (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, man. And I, and I love, I love football. I love the NFL and fantasy football and stuff. Like, so I'll, if it's playoff time, I'll watch as much basketball as I can. I'll watch the NFL. I'll always watch as much NFL regular season as I can. And, um, you know, try to get out and do some, do some rec league and, and always up to talk about it. Unfortunately, I love entrepreneurship and I love like the ideas of Liberty and philosophy and like almost nobody who likes those things likes sports. So <laughs> hey, they don't get my analogies. You can call me up anytime. We'll talk about it. Isaac, I, I know it, dude. I appreciate your time. Uh, where can people find you? Yeah, you can go to, um, well, just go to isaacmorehouse.com because you can find everything there. You can find Praxis, the apprenticeship company. You can find uh, Crash, which we sort of done a rebrand to Career Hackers. Um, you can go there and find all kinds of great resources on just kind of taking, taking charge of your career. We've got a daily newsletter called The Daily Job Hunt. We have almost 200,000 subscribers there now. Um, so you can check anything out at isaacmorehouse.com or find me on Twitter. Awesome. And I'll put all that in the show notes. Hey, Isaac, again, appreciate your time. I love what you're doing. Keep it up. Thanks so much, man. I had a blast.